following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We're scheduled to read in First Chronicles uh, again this evening and tonight in the 10th chapter. So if you would turn there to First Chronicles and chapter 10... First Chronicles goes over a lot of material that First and Second Kings do, as you know, but from the perspective and with an emphasis on the southern kingdom, the legitimate kingdom. And here we see in First Chronicles 10, well, this is before the split, but we see Saul and his sons, what's happened to them. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that, they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So what happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. And they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. Get that, please. Let me read that again. Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, that is a, a medium, is a uh, occult practice, calling up the dead and uh, trying to communicate with them as he did just before these events occurred, <laughs> recorded. Verse 14, but he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he, that is the Lord, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And so the end of Saul is before us there. Oh, cautionary tale, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, so the question is, for those of you that couldn't hear, is was this a suicide or was this a death as a result of battle? And uh, it's a little bit of a messy... Uh, Kind of situation, right? So uh, you might you might make a case either way. I would the way I read this text, it looks to me like ultimately that it was a suicide that he committed. However, uh, he did that because he knew that a he was wounded by the archers, which likely meant that he expected he would probably suffer and die anyway. And secondly, when he says I'd be abused by them, it probably mean I'd be tortured by them and then finally killed. So his end was pretty well settled already. So he ended it early by committing that suicide. Today, of course, we would, we would say, well, just being wounded by the archers, very likely not going to be your final demise. You can get to an emergency room quick enough. Right, but that wasn't the case then. You know, for many, many, for much of human history, if you received a injury so that you had a hole in your body, other than your, you know, nose and mouth and so on, you were going to die because the sanitation was so poor. Uh, one way or the other, you were going to get it. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, okay, so the question then is, uh, it, was there a special honor attached to dying in battle for the nation, and should we attach that purple heart, so to speak, to King Saul? And I believe we should not attach any purple hearts, medals of honor, or anything of that nature to, to King Saul. Uh, he was a king, but that's about all he was. He was not a man of God. He did not listen to God. He disobeyed God. I mean, the text tells us he did not keep the word of the Lord, and he consulted a medium for guidance. He did not inquire of the Lord. That's pretty tough to say, you know, here's a good guy, you know, except for these major problems. Yeah, so it's not really that he was a patriotic fellow who, you know, stood for Israel and stood for God and all of that right to the very end. So it's a difficulty. Now, the, somebody might then ask the question, well, does, does the fact that he committed suicide uh, condemn him to an eternity apart from God, that fact in itself? And the answer to that question is, in general, no. I don't take that position at all. Some have done that in the past in different churches um, and different, you know, people who have different opinions about that. But uh, the, how can I say, the deterrent factor of teaching somebody that if you do that, you will go to an eternity apart from God is really no deterrent in my mind because it's false. You can't give somebody a, a false piece of information and use that as a deterrent. What you have to do is present to them the exceeding value in Christ and in God of life, present that value and say, you know, you shouldn't be involved in that kind of activity against yourself or assisting others in that kind of activity, but remember the exceeding value of life in the image of God, and he, he has told us don't commit murder. That includes on anyone, including self. Um, so I don't take it that, you know, a suicide automatically condemns one to an eternity apart from God. However, in this case, I would say that Saul is not with the Lord for other reasons, other reasons. It doesn't say anything about how his end was. I think in this, you know, in this kind of case, if this were David, a man after God's own heart who saw his end was near and he did the same thing, there would be no um, particular uh, bad reputation attached to him just for that. He'd be like, well, that's just how... It all ended up, you know, you, you, you might, you know, hope for him to, uh, you know, to die like a, a knight in shining armor and standing to the last drop of blood and all that sort of thing. But that's not how war works. That's not how battle works. So, yeah, interesting. Thank you for those, those questions. Very difficult situation. Lots of debate about Saul. I've made my position known about that. And these uh, things here... Really, when you have these, it doesn't sound very good, you know. <laughs> this, this is written on his tombstone, basically, so it's not a good sign. It's not like he's a man after God's own heart and made a few mistakes. These are like, these are, are interwoven into his personality and his character. He hated David for years and years and tried to kill him. That's not the attitude of a believer. And he went to a medium and he was desperate to seek for some kind of help, but he wouldn't seek the Lord. It's just bad news all the way around, so difficult situation. All right, anything else on uh, that? All right, I uh, did offer the opportunity for some questions, and I did get some this afternoon I will address. Um, I've asked if there are any other questions just here. I can just re refresh that request. If you had a Bible question you wanted to ask tonight, Oh, we've got two. Okay. All right. I'm going to take Carolyn. Yes. So the question is, uh, what does the Bible say about helping others with physical needs? And really the question is kind of a the balancing question of should we give to meet physical needs uh, as over against how do we balance that with giving to meet the spiritual need of, of individuals when there's so much need out there that we see. 
and so I can't give you a cut and dried answer, you know, a 13% and, you know, an 87% or something like that. It's not that way. I can give you some principles to help, and I think one, one idea or thought that has guided me over the years on this question, as a pastor of a church, most of, most of our focus as a church, as an institution together, must be on the Great Commission. We're not going to go down the path of focusing on you know, digging wells and building hospitals and feeding the children and, and those sorts of things because we have a specific mission given by God, and that is the Great Commission. So our focus as an institution, as a church, and I believe this should apply to all local churches of our, that, that, that hold the same kind of belief that we do, that we're a Great Commission church, Bible church, Bible teaching church, we must focus on that, focus our efforts there as an institution. If we do not, here's the, here's the reason why I say that, if we do not do that, who will? I mean, do you expect the secular charity down the street to say, oh, the churches aren't meeting the gospel need of the community, so we better do something about that? They're not going to do that. So we've been assigned a niche, if you will. That's our specialty. That's what we do. And the world is not just us. And so I can encourage my heart in this matter by saying there are all those other organizations that help in the different areas, you know, food gatherers in our country and, and, uh, and, and plus government institutions and agencies and money that flows by the trillions of dollars to the poverty program and things of that nature. So you have others that are meeting those needs now, that doesn't excuse us from meeting any or all physical needs that may be in our assembly or in our sphere of influence, but it does give us a priority, and it helps us to balance so that we don't go around feeling guilty all the time, that we don't give to every person that calls on the telephone asking for our money. Uh, we focus our giving in that regard. Now, as an, and, and it's true that giving to people's physical needs is very important and necessary. And listen, as I say this, I'm cognizant of James and of 1 John that say, look, if, if there's somebody that's hungry and destitute, needs food or clothing, and it's in your power to solve that need, do it. Do it. But you can't... The fact is the news gives us so many... I mean, it becomes overwhelming. How do you, how do you be involved in that? So then what I would encourage you to do as a citizen of the nation and of the world and a human being, on that level, pick one or two things that you would like to be involved in and do them. What, it's up to you. You want to be involved in, in um, I don't know, helping with food or water or medical or whatever, you be involved in that as a citizen. We're not going to do that as an institution because you already can participate in that as individual citizens. So you might say, I'm a nurse and I know how to run an ultrasound machine. So I'm going to go to the, you know, the uh, crisis pregnancy center and I'm going to run one of those machines for a few hours a week and I'm going to show some expectant moms what a baby looks like inside there. Uh, or you might say, I can donate clothing or I can go help you know, uh, like our sister Laura did years ago, go to the crisis pregnancy center, organize their clothes, help them with the donations and things like that. Or you might say, I'm going to go help somebody learn to read. I'm going to teach, uh, you know, life skills. Um, I'm going to go, I'm a doctor, and I'm going to go to, uh, you know, Africa or South America, and I'm going to, you know, apply my trade there. I'm a dentist. I'm going to do that. Um, you know, I'm going to give to uh, extra to missions to be able to, uh, you know, do the work that they're doing. Things like that you can select and choose as you are gifted, as you have ability, as you have burden to do that. But I wouldn't, I can't encourage you to try to do everything because you just, it's too much, you know. And you want to, you want to know, too, where you're giving, who you're participating with. You don't want to give to just any old charity that calls you know, what percentage of their money actually goes to the end result? Are they financially sound? 
uh, or does 90% of it go to admin, excuse me, administration? But the, the priority for us is the gospel because you can help people with physical needs until you're blue in the face and until they die. And if they're not saved, it's not going to help them much. It's good. It's helpful. It, it is, there is some value to it, but it's not going to, in the end, help that much. And so, you know, you want to show the best kind of love, the best kind of care for people's souls. Uh, and that's, that's important to us uh, because we know where we're ultimately going. Life is short. And uh, another thought came to my mind. Let's see if I can bring it back here. Um, hmm. It'll probably come back in a moment. Any follow-up on that question? So you've got to be quite selective on that question. Yep. Yeah, Becky gives an example of a charity that is well-known by name, but it doesn't give actually much of its income to the actual needs in the end. Yes? Made a big difference for that one family, didn't it? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So That's right. Yes, yes. So sometimes you have to, not you have to, but God provides you an opportunity to help somebody, and then you can share with them the gospel as well. And, and if we were, we could choose as a church to do a ministry just like that. We could choose to do a, uh, provide a meal to a random family at Thanksgiving time or something, knowing that God has, it's not random in God's economy, uh, and then hopefully have a, an opportunity with them. One other thing, and this is what I had for, I'd misplaced in my mind, it was sometimes you have to be careful that meeting needs actually helps the people that you are helping and not enable them to maintain a lifestyle of irresponsibility. So you have to be very wise about that. Just helping, you know, makes you feel good, but you can actually be hurting. And so there is a title of a book, When Helping Hurts. And you have to be cautious about that as well. So again, like I say, there's this balance where you don't just throw out all physical needs. The other thing is, you know, when we look around our community, there are people that have major problems. But the poor in America are rich, relatively speaking, in many cases. Not entirely, but in many cases. They have things that you couldn't imagine 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. They have support, they have food stamps, they have all kinds of things. Lots of, so you, you have to keep things, you have to keep needs in perspective, what needs are. And sometimes a good way to do that is to either by way of documentary or by actually traveling to places, see what real grinding poverty looks like. Good news, in the last uh, several decades, because of... Uh, economic improvement and um, the work of capitalism, basically. Uh, the people, the number of people in grinding poverty in the world has been reduced dramatically, which is a very good thing, a very happy occurrence, very happy occurrence. So, yes, J.L.? 
Yes. So the comment is if you can look in the circle of people that you are acquainted with and give to some need there, then you have a personal connection by which then you can use uh, the connection to advance the gospel. But if you're just like sending a check to some organization, it just becomes kind of a part of the system there and a number. You don't really have a personal connection with, with that giving. So that's a very good, very good suggestion. And, uh, and of course, we also must remember uh, we need to do good to the household of faith. Do good to all men, but that one word in there is very important, especially to those of the household of faith. So, um, you know, somebody pointed out this very interesting thing. A lot of people come to the church. I'm not saying, let me, let me revise that. A lot of people come to churches which offer social help, looking for that social help, but they don't want what the church is offering in terms of the gospel. Maybe it would be good for the church to say, look, you can participate and have the help of the body if you join the church. And I'm not just saying make it a membership, you know, Costco, Sam's Club situation here, okay? I'm talking about joining, really joining. Listen to the gospel, hear the gospel, become part of this community. And in this community, we take care of people. But we can't take care of everybody that's out there. Right? So they want the goods, but they don't want the participation in the family of God. So that's an interesting thought that I think we should keep in mind. That word especially kind of points us in that direction. Doesn't shut off compassion from our hearts, please. That's the last thing from my mind. Uh, should I give you illustrations? Maybe I should as a pastor, but I've decided for tonight I'm not going to. Um, I'll just give, you know, say generically, we have decided to do some things here and there as benevolence in our own family. And we don't, you know, toot our own horn or, or talk about those things. Uh, and you probably do the same. You know, your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing, so to speak. And you don't boast about those things, but we all should be doing those things, even to random people. You know, somebody at the gas station that looks like they need a a little extra in the tank, give them a few bucks. What are you doing with it? Sitting on it in your wallet? <laughs> you know, you have plenty probably, maybe not every month, but you have something. You know, somebody that needs some groceries, take them grocery shopping. Somebody who has a car problem, help them with their car problem. Whatever, you know, God puts in your, in your pathway. So you had another question. Okay, Ruth chapter 4. Okay. What's the question about 4.15? So you're asking about the phrase, who is better to you than seven sons? That's a little tough, isn't it? So the question is, I guess the question is, what is the meaning of this, who is better to you than seven sons? That this daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons and has borne this child to her. Would that be... Uh, kind of make you feel bad about your sons? I mean, not your sons, but I mean, having sons? Or is that the... F oh, is the real question that this is Naomi's child? Boy, oh boy, <laughs> I'm going to need to have Jansen's consult and James up here because uh, you're really asking the question. So then, then we add the question, is this, uh, is this Naomi's uh, child? And uh, who named this child anyway? 
And they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So who, who named uh, this child then? Boy, no, yeah. This is three questions. You only get one question around here. <laughs> yes, right. Well, <clears throat> we think with a highly individualized mindset in the West. And they did not think that way in the East or in the Far East, the Middle East. And so when uh, a child was born to a son or a daughter of yours, that was your family too. And we have some of that in our culture where uh, even distant family members in, in certain families or well, maybe, I mean, maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's a cultural thing, I suppose. Distant family members, cousins and brothers kind of are, what, on an, on an even keel. I mean, we, on an even level. You know, we, and our, our kind of growing up is that you've got your brothers and your sisters, and boy, they're the real close ones. And then the cousins, because in our case, very distant. You know, we hardly ever saw them. I probably wouldn't recognize three or four of my cousins that I, I'm thinking of right now because I've seen them so little. The last time I saw two or three of them was in 2004. Just the way that our family rolls, you know. Maybe I shouldn't admit that online, but you know, maybe they'll see this and say, "Oh, yeah, here, here we are." <laughs> but um, as much my fault as, as theirs, uh, we'll say it that way. But um, this. This little child was the child that replaced to her her husband and her two sons. This was her baby. I mean, this was, she waited a long time. She could not have a child now herself. She was past the age, not married. But this was really her child in that sense of the collective of the family and the passing on of the family name and the inheritance and, and all of that. So... Uh, you know, the prayer that he would be a restorer and a nourisher, I think they're reflecting on the sad circumstances of her past. I mean, she's not over that yet. She's lost her husband, which is sort of understandable. I mean, many women are widowed, uh, you know, not necessarily an early age, but she was at an earlier age. And then, but then you'd think at least one of her sons would survive her and give her some grandchildren and she'd be able to have that joy in life. Nope, not that either. So this is her life, she could say, is very bitter. It's, it's a disaster what's happened to me. Why did God do this? And of course, uh, you know, the, it was very easy to transfer the curse of the Mosaic Covenant on the community to oneself and say, boy, since I don't have children... I must be, I'm barren because God hates me. I'm a, I'm a cursed person and very bad, uh, very bad situation. So, um, so that is uh, the restorer of life and the family connection. So, and I think that, that kind of answers, is this Naomi's child? Obviously, you know, she doesn't see the child as hers, hers, but it's, it's next to it. And then as far as the uh, women uh, naming the child. What a blessing that all the neighbor women come to her and and rejoice with her, uh, coming and speaking to her and encouraging her. Look at what God has done out of the ashes of this bitterness that you had experienced. And I'm sure she had talked to all these ladies about her bitterness, or <laughs> probably they knew about it, and uh, it really impacted them, and they were s- sympathetic to her. And they called his name Obed. So maybe it was that they gave him this name and it stuck. Uh, How long? Let's see. She bore a son in verse 14. The women said this and this and took the child, became a nurse. Doesn't say when this was relative to his circumcision. Typically, the name would be assigned at the time of the circumcision of a boy, eight days. And so maybe... They gave this as a suggestion, and lo and behold, Boaz liked it, and Ruth liked it, and Naomi liked it, and they said, that's what we're going to call our child. Boaz is ultimately the the namer of the child, is the head of the household that had the child. So 
we'll leave it at that, I think. But, uh, certainly, I don't think they're stepping out of the bounds of what they should be doing uh, here. Follow up. Okay, that'll cost you. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Okay, so the question has to do with the land ownership. I believe that what happened was that Elimelech sold the land so that they would have money to go move. And that sale in Israel's economy was not permanent, never was permanent, because the land was allotted by tribes, and you couldn't, like, say one from Judah couldn't sell to Benjamin, and it would permanently become part of Benjamin's tribe. It always reverted back when? Remember? The year of Jubilee. So those 50-year markers came, and so you would sell the land for the value of that land, basically like a lease, until the next 50-year increment of time. So you would sell, okay, there's 40 years left, I'll sell it for 40 years times however much it could produce in crops, whatever the value of it was. And uh, I don't know if it was location, location, location back then, but you know so they figured it out amongst themselves. And then the land could be redeemed, bought back. That's what Boaz had to do. His role had to be. So whoever it was, maybe, and, and they had it, notice the text says in Ruth 1.4, they were there about 10 years. So a decade has passed, And the land didn't lie fallow. Somebody was most certainly using it and had bought it for that 10 years or or actually until the next Jubilee. And then Boaz comes along. Eventually, maybe it's year 11, 12, however long it took for the rest of the events to, to unfold here, and bought back the land at the discounted price, whatever the original price was, minus 10 years is how that would have worked. And uh, brought it back into the family, into the tribe, and uh, then they were able to use that again. But he had, he had some wealth, and he was able to do that. Otherwise, they would have had to wait until the 50-year jubilee to receive it back, and maybe Naomi is gone by then if it's too far away. I don't know how far away it was. So uh, does that answer your question about the land? Probably sold uh, for finances to go on the trip to go buy some house there in Moab and do their thing, and then... When they came back, that all had to be uh, adjudicated again. So, land economics, yeah. So, yes, you're welcome. All right, the other question I had tonight had to do with Bible translations. And uh, there are really several questions here, so this person's getting more than their fair share too. Uh, But let me uh, work on these with you this, this evening. Um, and what I'll do, I think, is I'll read these questions, and I'm going to answer them, but not necessarily in the order that they're given here. Uh, so first question, what are the different manuscripts used for major translations? Second, in your opinion, are there positives and negatives for each manuscript, and if so, what are they? Third, the disciples used or had access to the Septuagint. What are your thoughts on this Greek translation of the Old Testament? Uh, Number four, what encouragement can you offer to someone who's studying God's Word and at times feels frustrated because of the different manuscripts and translations? Then there are word-for-word translations and thought-for-thought translations. Are thought-for-thought translations better for children and or new Christians? Or do you advise everyone should read word-for-word translations? And finally, would you provide your thoughts on different translations and what you like and dislike about them? Okay. So that, um, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, speak for yourself. (laughs) Uh, That is why I did a seminar in Bible text and translation some years ago in 2008 with 33 pages of notes. And I keep these for a reason. 
although I'm not going to use them this evening per se, uh, unless I think of something to reference there. Uh, and I have not revised those notes now for 13 years, so they're going to have to uh, wait for a further revision. But let me uh, take the questions in a, a different order than they were given. Thoughts, my thoughts on different translations and what you like and dislike about them. So one thing I dislike about translations is there's too many of them. There are too many of them in the English language because there's too much money to be made in translation. And I am involved with Bibles International doing translations for people groups that don't have the Bible in their own language. And I am very firm that we are not, should not, be charging for our services. The church here supports us out of the voluntary gifts of God's people, and we need to make the Word of God available. There's no copyright on it. Oxford, Cambridge, Thomas Nelson, you know, United Bible Societies, all that. They cannot hold the Word of God away from people due to cost. Um, and we just have way too many translations in the English language. There are some good ones. There are lots of bad ones. There's lots of middle-quality ones. But our resources need to be more, uh, wiser, more wisely spent on doing translations for people that don't have them. Instead of getting 100, translation, 100 translators together and doing a big translation in the English language all the time and, and uh, having you know, dozens and dozens of English translations. Now, um, I know that doesn't sell, <laughs> but we're not in it for money. So that's one problem I have with the different translations. It's, as far as specific translations, I always use a very short list of them that I feel that are worth our attention. You know I use the New King James Version, uh, the New American Standard Version, which is just coming out with a, has come out just now with a new update, I think 20. Uh, the last update was 95, which is a very good translation. The ESV, English Standard Version, uh, the New International Version, the NIV. Um, and probably those would be the four that are on my short list. Um, I use other ones in my study as well. There's the Lexham English Bible, a New English translation, and others which are helpful for me as a specialist in studying the Word. But uh, it's just too many overall for us to have to, to, to process. Um, I, as you know, use the New King James Version. I do not use the King James Version anymore. I used to uh, quite extensively, but it's too, uh, it's too outdated in my view and not helpful today to introduce new people to the faith. The language is archaic, frankly. Uh, it was last revised 1769. That's the version that everybody uses, and uh, it's not helpful to us. Um, also, there is another... Uh, problem with the uh, downside of the King James Version, and that is this whole fracture of the King James-only movement, which I have desperately wanted to keep out of our church because it's divisive. And so one way that I do that is I say, we're using the New King James Version. I began doing that very shortly after I became pastor here. Uh, and so that anybody coming in who had strong King James-only feelings would not be comfortable unless they were willing to learn and change, which many of them aren't, then it would be better for them to go somewhere else where their, their translation preference is, um, is met. So that has saved us from a little bit of headache over the years. I, are, I know that, and then, of course, I don't know what headache it has saved us from when I don't know, because people look on our website and say, well, that's not the church for us. It seems highly unreasonable and even heretical, I'll say to me, to have in your doctrinal statement that the King James only is the preserved word of God and the only valid translation in the English language. But I can't tell you how many doctrinal statements I read on church websites that have that wrong statement. I say if the Apostle Paul couldn't say it, then it shouldn't be in there. If Peter couldn't say it, it shouldn't be in your doctrinal statement. If you don't have parentheses with Bible verses around inside of them that prove your point of what you're saying, it shouldn't be in your doctrinal statement. And so that's why the King James, to me, I've set it aside because I think you can get all the benefit that the translators put into the King James today in other translations. And they did a, a yeoman's work. They did great work 
in their time with the resources they had. I'm not trying to say it's a bad translation, but it's, it's time has come and gone, and that's why I have set it aside. Okay, so uh, I prefer translations that are more word-for-word -word translations. So New King James is that way for the most part. NASB and ESV, uh, NIV would fall to a second tier on that criteria for me. Other people like the NIV and they have a strong view of the philosophy that the NIV has that is they render the text according to a dynamic equivalent methodology. So they try to communicate the exact meaning that was communicated to the original audience. They try to communicate that same meaning to the English audience. It's a laudable goal uh, and sometimes ends up with a very good result in the translation. So. Uh, you know, maybe just give you an idea. If I were to have to pick between King James and NIV, I'd probably pick the NIV, frankly, um, and leave that King James still aside. But I don't use the NIV very much. I use the other translations, New King James, NASB, ESV, a little bit more. Uh, I, am, I, I am convinced that you've got to be very careful when you decide to omit what I call omit words from the translation that should be there. Connective words, uh, connectors, and you know sometimes instead of a connector, they might have a, a period, start a new sentence. And those connectors are extremely important. As I've taught our men in men's prayer meeting with our studies of how to study the Bible, uh, the inside in those connectors are really the they bear a lot of meaning despite their small size. So when you have a word like therefore or but or and or something else. I mean, that's what connects the ideas together and gives meaning to the text. So I, I'm very care I want to be very careful about that, but to condemn one of these translations because they do that too much is a little bit harsh in my mind in the sense of just an utter condemnation and calling them unbelievers and they did a terrible job and all that. It's just too much. It's too much. Um, let me segue then to a second part of the question. That is, what encouragement can you offer to someone that's looking to study God's Word and at times feels frustrated because of different manuscripts and translations? What I would say is the differences between the translations, these good translations, are so small that really, from a practical perspective, I can tell you as more of an expert than most of you in the languages, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Take up whatever translation of these good ones that you can and study it. Don't worry about the manuscript question, the King James only people that are chattering in your ear and all these other things. Just take up the Word of God, take it up and read it, study it, put it into practice. Uh, you know, we're talking about differences that are in the small numbers of percentages between the translations, and many of those differences are quite insignificant, quite insignificant differences that don't make a whole lot of difference to the meaning. Let me give you an example of that uh, from my notes, um, and uh, let me just see if I can find it. I was looking at it earlier. Yeah, a simple example of a problem in the text, and this will kind of get us into the area of where the problems come from and, and the, the different manuscripts from which our Bibles are translated. But it says uh, this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, NIV, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. New King James, same verse. I do not want you to be ignorant. So is it I or is it we? And the reason for this is that the New King James is based on a certain family of Greek manuscripts that has the word I. The NIV and other translations are based on another set of, or family of manuscripts, actually several families, that have the word we. And so they've been, those translations in English have each been faithful to their underlying Greek text and rendered that word as either we or I. What difference does that make in your understanding of the meaning of this verse? Brothers, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
Or, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There's a difference, I or we, but the significance of that difference is really minuscule if you look at the meaning of it. And that's where I land when I'm doing Bible study. I, try, I don't try to expose those things from this pulpit because it doesn't contribute to your sanctification and your being brought up in the faith. Yes, I'm aware of those differences, and yes, I can you know, opine on them like you know, everybody else can, but the question is for me, should I do that in shepherding the flock? And I believe the answer to that is no, for the most part. I'm happy to expose these, these differences and say why they come about and all that, so you're educated to some extent, but you're never going to, you know, unless you say, I'm going to really dig in and learn Greek. Okay, see you three or four years later, and you'll be able to have some more, you know, cognizance of the issues going on. But short of that, you're not going to have that kind of expertise. And if you found us, me, to be faithful in the matters teaching God's Word, I'm just telling you, you don't have to worry about these things, okay? Please don't be discouraged about them. Uh, take up the Word of God and read it. I think in many cases, especially with the King James only thing and majority text and Textus Receptus, which I haven't explained to you yet, but these become like useless wranglings of men who aren't really looking out for the things of the faith. They're kind of super focused on one issue and they've to their own hurt and to the hurt of their churches. I mean, you know, these, some of these King James-only churches, every Sunday there's something about you've got to use the King James Bible, and it's insanity. It's not preaching the whole counsel of God. And so that's why I'm very stringent against that sort of thing. So don't be discouraged by those things. One, the differences are relatively minor in most cases. Um, and the meaning is not changed, and we don't want to get involved in useless wranglings uh, over words and uh, things of that nature. Like ta uh, Paul tells Titus, Paul tells Timothy as well several times. Um, I think I've de dealt something with the, uh, the style of translation, either more word-for-word -word or dynamic uh, or thought-for-thought. -thought. Let me say something more about that. If you are at all multilingual, you know that a strict adherence to word-for-word -word translation is impossible. It's impossible. Okay, if you just imagine yourself, you, you know English very well, now imagine yourself fluent in Spanish. You cannot take certain phrases in English and just translate them into Spanish. Well, you can, but you may have a very funny result on the other end. And the same with Spanish. There's certain phrases in Spanish that just, they, they, they express the idea. And I'm not fluent in the language. I know enough a little bit to read and to study some theology. But they express, in, in conversational Spanish, they express something that is just, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a short word or phrase that's just like, yeah, I wish we could capture it that way in English, but we can't. We just don't have that idea uh, the same way. And I'm sure there, that that's the case in the other direction. But so when you're thinking about translating from Greek, commonly spoken 2,000 years ago, into modern English, sometimes it's impossible to translate word for word. I'll just give you an example from an even older language, Hebrew, uh, in the Old Testament. You have an idiom in Hebrew, it's an extremely common phrase, that says this, and Abraham was a son of 75 years. What does it mean, Ann? Have you heard that idiom before? It means his age is 75. He's 75 years old. But the text says he is a son of 75 years. Now, we could translate it that way into the English Bible, but it really wouldn't make sense. So you see how a word-for-word -word translation... I mean, you might say... Oh my, the English translation dropped out the word son. It's evil. No, what it did was it said 
the meaning of this text, every translation does this, the meaning of this text is that he's 75 years old. That's what the idiom in that language means. So we're going to translate that into proper English to convey the same meaning. Uh, you might have, uh, in, in fact, translations aren't consistent in this matter. You have the NIV, which is known as a dynamic equivalent translation. It says, all scripture is God-breathed, perfect. Most other older English translations, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Well, where did they get that? It's God-breathed is what it says in the Greek text. God breathed it out. So actually, the NIV there is more literal word for word than the other translations. Funny things you have in the King James, like uh, I can't remember the location of it, but the phrase from uh, that when the Lord was hanging on the cross and they were mocking him, and it says the thieves cast the same in his teeth. That's not what the text says. But that's the phrase that they used in that era of English to mean that they mocked along with the rest of the crowd. So uh, what about children? Uh, Probably I wouldn't give a child a New American Standard Bible, at least not the uh, older ones. You can can be wise about that question, I think, uh, by looking at some helps. For instance, I think the New American Standard uh, if you grade it by uh, uh, grade, how do I say it? Reading level by grade, I think it's like eleventh grade or something. King James is quite similar, so you probably wouldn't give that to your eight-year-old who is just beginning reading. An NIV would be fine. A New King James would work okay. ESV would be, you know, okay, but it wouldn't be wrong to allow your child to read a New King James or a NASB or anything, even a King James. That's not. It's not sin, it's not, but at some point these older translations are going to fall off and we'll we'll be using something else in the English language. Um, What else? (laughs) Uh, Positives and negatives for the different manuscripts. Let me just give you a quick overview. If you were... um, just entering into the study of where do we get our Bible, we'll just focus on the New Testament because the Old Testament is a whole other ball of wax. It's too much. It's too much to talk about in a short amount of time. But there are a multitude of Greek manuscripts in different forms, uh, different writing styles that have been found throughout the Mediterranean world for the New Testament. In Israel, in Alexandria, in the Western countries, in uh, Uh, Asia Minor, you have the Byzantine text family, you have the Alexandrian family of texts. These are manuscripts that have been found out of libraries dug up in the sand, so to speak, by archaeologists, and they're studied very carefully, I mean very carefully, as best to the best of our ability, and they're categorized based on their similarities with one another. So we see, you know, these Byzantine family uh, manuscripts all have a family resemblance, and these Alexandrian ones, family resemblance, and these Western ones, family resemblance, and Caesarean texts, family resemblance to one another. And they all, of course, very strongly resemble each other because they're from the same original sources, but they do have differences among them. And so once, once a manuscript was made and there was a typo, say, and then it became the father of many other manuscripts, that typo was propagated and became a part of that, an identifying fingerprint of that family of manuscripts. And so the the King James and the New King James are based on a family of manuscripts that is a subset of the Byzantine family of manuscripts. And that family is very large, thousands of manuscripts, and a small number of them was used to produce the King James Version. So that's the King James. All other translations today, and the New King James, which follows along that line, that tradition, all other translations today, pretty much, are based on a collation of all the different manuscript families, especially the Alexandrian, Caesarean, Western texts, not so much the Byzantine texts. Okay, Um, And so... 
the King James-only advocates and those who are really strong on that view want to have a translation based on the Textus Receptus, it's called, that little subfamily of the Byzantine family of texts, okay? Uh, how else can I, how, where else can I go with this? Um, and the others are saying, no, we can't just rely upon that small subset of evidence. We must use all of the evidence. And then when you use all the evidence, you have a problem because not every manuscript agrees on every point. Is it I or is it we? And then you have to, as a textual critic, it's called, or a textual scientist, look at all the evidence and say, well, it looks like this reading is probably the origin of all these other typos, say, and so we kind of can figure out what the original text was based on some scientific deduction, they think, and there are certain um, rules of thumb that they use for those, you know, for those scientific investigations, and they think that they've come up with a very close uh, representation of the original text. That is what some people call the critical text or eclectic text. King James only advocates would hurl insults at that text and say, well, you know. But the thing is, you have to realize, uh, even, even the Textus Receptus, this little family of manuscripts over here that the King James is based on, I don't, I don't prefer that because it's a small subset of the data. As a, as a scientist myself, I think you should look at all the data. You might not weigh it all the same, but you've got to look at it. And you've got to figure out if it needs to be weighed or if it's uh, you know, obviously wrong or produced by some obvious heretic or something like that. Look at all the evidence, see what you find, weigh it, and decide. In that case that I gave you, the I or the we, the Textus Receptus says I, the rest of the Byzantine family says we, and these other manuscript families say we. So in that case... When that happens, then I, it's clear to me that the, the Textus Receptus is probably wrong. And I'm willing to say that in certain cases, for sure it's wrong, leading to translation errors in the King James Version. So another reason and kind of another strike. They didn't get everything right, and they admitted that. They're humans, right, those translators. As good as they were, they were humans, so they could indeed be subject to mistake. Um, so those are the primary manuscripts used for them. Positives and negatives for each one. Uh, it's a little hard to summarize for me at this point. I might have to just hold that off. Um, I am sympathetic to the, uh, that, remember that Texas Receptus again, that whole big family called the Byzantine family? Because there's so much, I know God has preserved those I do give quite a bit of weight to those myself, more than, say, somebody in the critical text realm would give to that family. So I have been uh, you know, f favorable to a majority text position. That's what Bibles International uses in their, as their basis for translation. And so we have fine fellowship with them. But I'm not here to say that that's the be-all and end-all, that it never could have a mistake in it. Uh, what do I say mistake in it? What do I mean by that? You know, your, is your whole faith thrown into uncertainty because I said that? Shouldn't be, shouldn't be, because the differences, again, are so minor. Imagine yourself copying the manuscript of the New Testament 5,000 times by hand. Do you think you'd get every one exactly the same? Oh, I would. I'd be very careful. Yeah, except for when you're not feeling well and when you're tired and when you have a slip of the hand and the ink runs on the page and, and so on and so forth. And you'll have 5,000, maybe you'll have 2,500 different manuscripts out of the 5,000. Slight differences. But we can look at all those and say, well, here's all the evidence, here's what it looks like, and here's what we understand the original text to be. And there's some wrangling about that. But again, it's not so big that it throws our whole faith into confusion. So, yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. I said the word majority, which I should have said. You have, the, you have the Textus Receptus, which is a subset of this larger Byzantine family. This whole thing is also called the majority text. Same thing. Yeah, I forgot. 
I didn't. I should have defined my terms. So, but remember, you have all these different families: Byzantine, Texas Receptus, Western, Alexandrian, Caesarean. You know, there's a whole. You take New Testament intro in seminary, you go through all that stuff. Okay, so if you want, go to the seminary and get a, a class on that, and you'll learn more than you ever wanted to know about those subjects. So, um, yeah. The other question had to do with the Septuagint. I'm going to have to put that on pause because we're, we're late here and beyond time. But I hope that's helpful to you. I think uh, maybe the first two questions that I dealt with, I did that first for a reason because I think, you know, getting a kind of a pastor's perspective, a conservative pastor's perspective on what are the good translations and then why we don't have to, to fret about, oh, did I use the right translation in my studies for my whole life? No, there are good, good translations, so use them. Far better to use any of these four translations than just to give up and not use any at all. Be in the Word. That's my message from this question tonight. Be in the Word, study it, think about it, pray over it, try to understand it, ask questions about it, and God would be pleased with that. We have a stewardship, really, I mean, we have the Word of God, whatever translation. I mean, we have no excuse. Yeah, how many Bibles do I own? Right, and how many are on my computer? Only about 300 and change. You know, I have no excuse for not having God's Word. But the poor people in, you know, wherever, in Myanmar or something, that don't have it in their own language, not one, not one. I mean, it's a sad state of affairs. That's why I'm dedicated to this work, to try to help a little bit, you know, our, our help. But we need, we need the help of thousands of people to get this problem solved before the Lord returns. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for answering uh, my prayer request that you would help us today to be edified and strengthened and to grow in the faith. Even with this last question about the Bible, help us to be confident in your word we know, Lord, there's, there are manuscripts, and, and really, we might look at that and say, oh, what a problem, but it's actually a very thankworthy thing, Lord, that you made people desire to copy your word to make it preserved for, uh, for posterity, for the ages to come, and we thank you that there's not some manuscript sitting in you know, the Vatican that everybody goes to worship because it's the original, Lord, we, we know that that's not... There is no such thing. You allowed those originals to disappear just like you took Moses' body and buried it in an unknown place so that it would not become a shrine and an idolatrous thing. And we thank you for that. So thank you for the wealth of resources you've given to us in this matter. Give us wisdom about how to help others with physical needs and balance that with our own requirement or responsibility to the church and supporting the gospel outreach that we have and Lord, thank you for the uh, question about Ruth and the restorer and the naming of the child and the land question and all of that that just f- helps familiarize ourselves with the mindset of these people and puts us into their shoes to see the great grief that Naomi experienced and then the great return that she had on that grief when you provided for her a restorer of life and a great blessing. Lord, she could, <clears throat> she could go to her grave with happiness instead of with utter sadness at what had happened in her life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I did not get any of this earlier, and I need it. So I wish you a good night. God bless you, and uh, we'll stick around and talk for a little while if you want to do that. I can stand one more question. Yeah, the number question is, what's the number one translation for a child amongst the four that I gave? And I really don't have a number, a hard number one. I would say NASB probably not because the reading level is too high. Um, but the other ones, you know, could work. Anyone could work. Uh, and it, there might be some value to challenging your young reader to start reading the translation that they will stick with for many years in their life. So you have to kind of, as a parent, weigh and balance that particular matter. Um, Personally, just a way of 
personal testimony. I was given by someone, and I feel badly now that I'm not thinking it. It may have been my grandmother or parents who gave me a new, uh, well, it was a living paraphrase. and It was basically connected to what is now the New Living Bible, New Living Translation. I read out of that Bible for years and years. still have it somewhere on my shelf, but it was a children's living Bible. had some illustrations in it and red letter edition, and I read that for many years. I didn't know anything about translations. I couldn't have told you a whit about it. I just knew that was the Bible, and I wanted to read the Bible because I was saved and needed to do that. So uh, that's what I did, and um, you know, I guess I turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Very important, though, I think, to establish a pattern of reading in the Scriptures and start to get familiar with it. Um, if for nothing else, I mean, even for those of you that might be listening online in a kind of more of a secular mindset, you should know the Bible. I mean, it is the most important piece of literature in the English language. In fact, in every language in the world. And out of it comes all kinds of things. We have laws in there. We have uh, phrases. We have the effect on literature, music, the arts. I mean, if you don't have the Bible, you're just not an educated person. Sorry. But that's a sad state of affairs. Ignorance. And, and then you watch what happens as, as knowledge of the word increases what, what happens in people's lives. And God will work through that. Funny thing happens when you read God's word. God can work because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so you can be transformed by that. If you give it a chance, as we say, you know, give God a chance. Amen. All right. Good night, everyone. God bless you.